Well, good morning. Just before we plunge into this text, I'd love to pray with you, but I, would, I want to request your prayers for something specific. Um, many of you know my wife and I are having another baby, and uh, she's going to have that baby via C-section tomorrow at 1 p.m. Um, many of you also know that that baby has Down syndrome. And so we are perched and prepared for our family to experience a very new chapter. And it's not lost on me on a week where I'm preaching about God's love for the little ones and his plans for some that, even as we're going to see in this text, that culturally might say need to be discarded. He has a heart for them and he draws them out. And so I need prayers for my wife and my baby boy. But I also need prayers for me as I preach this sermon that God would sustain me. It's been a very emotional experience preparing it for you. So, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dig in. Before I pray, would you just take a moment, and would you pray for Ashley and my son who's coming tomorrow? Pray for me for a particular anointing of the Spirit to do this work, to serve you. Uh, So our Father, we thank you. We thank you for moments like this, week after week, where we get to open the scriptures with confidence that as we do, you open your mouth and that you sustain your people with a word. I pray that as a result of being here today, we would see how you deliver the sort of God that you are that works in and through the compassion and the vision of your people to bring healing into the world. And we say, yes, here are your servants. Speak to us. We are listening. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So through Advent, we're preaching about babies, babies that were unexpected in some way or were, had God had intention for them to be a part of his redemptive story. And we're tracing God's redemptive story as we're paying attention to his heart for these little ones. And this week, as you heard, we're, we're talking about Moses Moses, the great deliverer of the Old Testament, who himself was delivered even as a little one, miraculously, marvelously, in this this little 10-verse story. And I think as we study this together, as we continue to lay the groundwork for understanding God's redemptive story throughout time, last week we saw that God makes and keeps promises, and this week we're going to see how God delivers What we are going to see together is this, that God silently and sovereignly delivers through the godly vision and the courageous compassion of unlikely characters. That God is eager and willing to use people like you and me as we engage with his vision and his compassion to be a part of his delivering power in the world. And so we're going to dig into this text to to see how that unfolds even in Moses' story. 
And the first thing I want us to explore is this idea that, that God is often silently and sovereignly at work. In order to, to make this point, I'm actually directing our attention to what's not in this text. Verses 1 through 10 is about Moses' deliverance. And there's this beautiful and unexpected turn of fate that a baby that has been condemned to death by the powers that be in Egypt is rescued. And not just rescued, but it ends up that his very mother is paid out of Pharaoh's coffers to nurse her own baby. You see, he has condemned this child to death, but now he's paying for it to be nursed by his own Hebrew mother. It is a miraculous and marvelous story in which God's name is not mentioned. God is silent in, this, in these 10 verses, the way that he is miraculously delivering Moses. And so I don't have a verse to show you for the first point because I, what I want to show you is God's name isn't there. He's, he's not actively named as being the one doing the action. And I think as we engage in this, in this text to understand how God delivers, it's important for us at the outset to recognize that there are huge swaths of biblical history. There are lots of particular episodes. And we know in our own story, there's lots of moments where God seems to be absent. It seems like he's not involved or he's forgotten or fallen asleep. And what I want to, to draw our attention to is this, that God is consistently, silently, sovereignly at work. That in each of these stories, we're going to see that there's no such thing as coincidence. If we could study a book like Esther, where his name doesn't show up at all, but time after time after time, there's these sovereign moments where God is very clearly aligning the details to bring his purposes forward. And I think there's at least two reasons that texts like this are consistently presented in the scriptures. And so I just want us to have this in mind as we study the text that is in front of us. Two reasons why consistently I don't think God is particularly mentioned as being the one doing the action. One, he wants us to see that he is providentially in control of all things. He wants us to see that even in the moments where we think he's absent, he's not, right? He is in control. And secondly, I think he is graciously making room for you and me. I think it's like an, it's an invitation we're going to see in this text that there's these broken things that we might pray and beg God to change. And I think he graciously hears our prayers and then sits silently kind of looking back at us and going, okay. Because in this text, what we're going to see is he's raising up Miriam, Moses' older sister. She's eight years old in this text. And I want us to envision and imagine what is God putting into her bones as an eight-year-old in this text that's going to be drawn out later in life when she is the leading woman in all of the Hebrew nation and a prophetess that speaks on behalf of God. God's sitting back silently and going, step into the story. Be an answer to your own prayers. Step out courageously and boldly. God is wisely, humbly, patiently waiting for his people to step in. And I think the same is true for us as we're engaging in this Advent season, thinking about tending to the unborn in our city, thinking about partnering with groups like The Source. That what we're, what we're recognizing is that there are things in our city that we would and we do have prayer meetings where we get on our knees and we plead and we pray and we say, God, would you change these things? And I think quite frequently his answer is a seeming silence. As if he's just looking back at us and going, yeah, you're invited. <laughs> I have an answer to this prayer and it's you. And we're going to see in this text that he's going to work deliverance through characters that are willing to step out courageously into that seeming silence, even as God is sovereignly overseeing it. So, 
The first note is, is what's not there. We're not going to see God's name mentioned, but we will see him sovereignly moving through his people. Let's see how. He, he moves first through their godly vision. Their ability to see the world as God sees the world. I want you to pay attention as I read these verses, the, the vision of two particular women. Jochebed, who, who, whose name we learn in another portion of scripture, is Moses' mother. And then Moses' adoptive mother, the daughter of Pharaoh. Two very unlikely characters that are going to meet at like the ultimate riverside project. That they are positioned alongside the river to rescue out of the river, which is per- one of the, the groups that we're working with, this is exactly what they're talking about. This is a passage that helps us see that. They are going to be engaged to show compassion in that place, but it starts with really seeing. Look in the text with me, and let's, let's pay attention to how they see. Verse 1 and 2 says this. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she She saw that he was a fine child. She hid him for three months. Now, there's something that's lost on us in this translation. It says she saw that he was a fine child. But literally, it's it's actually the same word in Hebrew that is used throughout the creation narrative when God creates things day after day, and he saw that it was good. This is, I think, an allusion to God's vision over all of creation that she looks at this baby and she sees it like God sees his creation. And she said, oh, he's good. She sees the goodness of this little baby that has the image of God, even though the powers that be in this moment have declared. Pharaoh in the previous chapter said, every Hebrew boy needs to be discarded, needs to be killed is not significant, is not valuable, is not good, is actually dangerous, is a threat, a threat to our well-being. And this baby that the powers that be say is valueless or is a threat, she with the eyes of God looks at him and sees him the way God sees his creation and says, no, this baby is good. And then further down, verse 6b, or pardon me, verse uh, 5 and 6a says this, Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river, and she saw the basket among the reeds. And she sent her servant woman, and she took it, and when she opened it, she saw the child. So she draws the child near, and she looks at it, and then behold, this is a word for like, stop and really look. So she sees him from a distance, she draws him close, she sees him up close, and then it says, and behold, the baby The baby was crying. You see, these two women have a godly vision that actually sees what's happening in front of them. Jochebed sees that this baby is good. Pharaoh's daughter sees that this baby is in need. She she draws him close enough to slow down and go, look, he's crying. He's in a basket in the river. This good creation of God is going to be discarded and it's not going to survive. And she sees the need that is right before her. And when we see both of those things simultaneously, this one is good. This one is in profound need. All of a sudden, something has to happen. You follow me? This is godly vision that sees the world as it is. And, whew, the honest confession that I need to make to you 
I am often willfully blind. Like, I, I choose it. It's been, a, it's, been an, it's been an occasion for repentance in this season as I prepare to be the parent of a child with special needs. It's what I've realized is this. I am addicted to power and efficiency, polish, impressiveness. I love it. Which means that when something that is going to produce too much neediness, like it's a threat to those things, to being impressive or efficient, moving quickly. Like those things that are a threat to it, I don't want to look directly at. I don't want to make eye contact with it because it's going to slow me down. And I before God have been going, forgive me, I don't see the world the way you see the world. Is this not true in so much of our lives that the way that we maneuver through life is trying to figure out how do I not get slowed down or blindsided by the messy, the needy, and the hurting? You see, <laughs> I arrange my life not to look too long at it because it's just uncomfortable when all of a sudden you say, behold, <laughs> need Need that maybe in this moment God's not actively doing something about because he's standing here waiting for the slumbering giant of his church to do something. And it's in this moment that we're trying to ask the question, what would it look like to worship Jesus in his coming in a way that delights his heart? And part of it is the partnering with three organizations that have positioned themselves to stare into the need and behold it. A group like the source that is tending to the unborn and to mamas that feel exposed and needy and scared and to stare at them and go, what would it really take to support this woman and to cherish this life and to give her vision? There's this beautiful thing, that, that ultrasound in the early moments when you hear a heartbeat and you see a baby and you go, good. This is a life to be preserved and fought for. What does it look like to slow down and to see in or the Riverside Project that's caring to children that are in the foster care system that are just being churned over from one family to another, passed on and discarded. It feels overwhelming to stop and to look because we see someone that's precious and good and has profound need and we go, oh, it's too overwhelming. This is gonna slow me down. <laughs> I like powerful, efficient like, let's, let's stay on that track. Or the landing that's tending to women that have been sex trafficked in our city, that are finding their way out and trying to figure out what does it mean to rebuild life after your dignity, your internal sense of value has been systemically and consistently and repeatedly torn to shreds. And when you pause and you stare at it, you go, ooh, this is, there's no shortcuts isn't like an easy fix. And quite frankly, at a heart level, what I want to do is not see it. And I think what we need to understand is this, the first movement where God is silently and sovereignly overseeing all things, the first kind of key that begins the unlock the door for his delivering power flooding into the system is his people having godly vision to slow down long enough and see the goodness and the need that's right in front of us. And I, 
I want to be the lead repenter here. I'm not saying that I do this perfectly. What I am saying is that if we're going to honor and worship Jesus, we better learn how to repent where this isn't true of us. Like, I'm going, God, forgive me. My vision is not like your vision. I don't see in value the same things you see in value. Oh, that God would give us proper sight because his deliverance starts with, it's initiated by godly vision. But it's not just that. It's godly vision that gives birth to courageous compassion. I want you to see how three women in this text, very unlikely characters, step out in compassion and how scary that compassion is. Each of them has to engage in a compassionate act for deliverance to show up, and it requires outrageous courage. These three women are strong, faithful women that are full of courage. They have steel in their spine. Compassion often feels weak. It's like one of those lesser things that we think about, but what I want us to see in this text is that compassion is strong. It requires courage. It requires outrageous boldness. See it with me in this text is the way each of these women shows compassion in a really strong way. Look at verse three and four. It says this. When she could hide him no longer. Now this is his mother who's been hiding him for three months. This baby that's been condemned to death, she's, she's nursing him by night going, shh, 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 shh. When he starts crying, when she starts making that noise, she's going, oh, oh, if they hear What's this going to mean for my life? For three months. This wasn't planned, but you get it. <laughs> this is my illustration. She's going, it's that feeling of like, oh, no, no, no. Shh, 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 shh. If they hear you, it might be all of our death. And she gets to the point three months in where she goes, I can't, I can't hide him any longer. And so encouraged, she, she prepares him lovingly in this basket daubed with bitumen and pitch. And she puts the child in and places it among the reeds. And his sister, who we know to be Miriam, the older sister, the leading woman of Israel later on in the story, who in this, in this season is, is probably about eight years old, she stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. This eight-year-old standing by herself on the Nile River, looking at the basket in the reeds. <laughs> and then I want us just to skip down to the second half of verse six, that here is Pharaoh's daughter looking at this baby, and it says, she took pity on him. So she's looking at him. She sees him and she takes pity on him. This is one of the Hebrews' children. This means this is one of the children that my father, the most powerful man in the land, has condemned to be killed. That's who this is. And then Miriam says to Pharaoh's daughter, do you want me to go call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Now, at this point, we don't know what's happening in the mind of the Pharaoh's daughter. She hasn't said anything. Miriam doesn't know what she's thinking. She may be thinking, my dad said this child's supposed to die. I better kill him. She doesn't know that there's pity welling up in her heart. But in that moment, this eight-year-old says, Do you, we need to preserve this baby's life. You want me to go get a mama to nurse her? Do you see the courage of the eight-year-old? The courage of the mama. And then verse 8, the courage of the adoptive mama. And verse 8 says, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Unbelievable. Courageous compassion from three women who are willing to risk tremendously because this baby is good and in need. 
Ah, do you feel it? Will our compassion have teeth? Will it be the sort of compassion that moves forward even where it costs us dearly? One of the things that we're asking of you, the church, is that you would consider rearranging your budget in December. That's a bold ask. But I hope you receive it in this way of, as we celebrate Christmas, we're we're wrestling with the values of Jesus and saying, are we primarily going to pile up presents for ourselves, or can we celebrate appropriately and joyfully, but less so in such a way that we create margins and we position ourselves as a church saying, we're all individually going to give a little bit more so that we as a community can give it all. That's what we've done since we were planted, because what we want to do is we want to celebrate the coming of Jesus in a way that Jesus says, I love it. That is, that's my heart. That's why I took on flesh. That's why I came. That you might have godly vision and see the world the way I see the world and have compassion like I have compassion. Oh, that we would be those sorts of people with a compassion that has courage to it, that has teeth to it. And it's not just money. It's your time and energy. A a friend and mentor from years back used to say, never separate your, your sweat equity from your financial equity. We want to be the sort of people that lean in with these organizations and go, how can we serve? Maybe it's that you end up over there at the landing having prepared a meal and serving it to women that are getting some of the training and the equipping as they're coming out of sex trafficking. Maybe you lean in in a way that you're seeing the unsettling realities more closely that begins to reorder your priorities and slows us down as a people. Maybe that's part of what God is inviting us to. A courageous compassion where we press in, maybe God's calling you to be a foster parent. You feel it? Like when you see the need and you see the goodness and you actually look at it, it might rearrange some stuff. Our lives might become far less efficient and powerful, important and impressive because we're seeing the world the way God sees the world and we're responding the way God responds. I don't know what it is for you. I, I, I don't claim to be the Holy Spirit on your behalf. Oh, but I long for you to listen to him. He has something to say about it. And I don't know what it is for you. Quite frankly, I don't even fully know what it is for me. But I do know I don't want to pass by. I don't want to be willfully blind. And I don't want to lack the compassion that leads to life. You see, God is silently and sovereignly at work through godly vision that gives birth to this courageous compassion. And I want you to hear this last note. It's done by the most unlikely of characters. There's this part of us that we may be thinking someone on the aisle, someone around me is a genuinely like compassionate, godly person that's probably going to step in in some fresh way. But I'm not sure I have the gifts or the positioning or the, the relationships or I'm not in that place in life or I'm not and I just want you to hear the way God does this is through unlikely characters so if that's you congratulations (laughs) like ta-da it's you it's me we have all of our list of excuses like well certainly God couldn't use me to make meaningful change in the world and he's like what you feel like you don't have what it takes you feel like You don't have in your hands what you need. You're not gifted enough, godly enough. He's like, listen, that's the only sort of person I use. The one that's convinced that they're powerful and gifted and godly and they're walking around with their, he said, I left them a long time ago. 
I don't deal with people like that. My power doesn't work through them. I only work through empty cups, through weak and needy people. Those sorts of people I see, those sorts of people I empower. So if you're an unlikely character, we can do something. Together, we can make an impact. And you see, in this text, it's these three women that we just talked about, Jochebed and Miriam and Pharaoh's daughter. And then lastly, the fourth character that's central to the story is in verse 10. In verse 10, it says this. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. This little baby drawn out of the water in conjunction with these three courageous women. Listen, these four in this moment with this crying, discarded baby, these are the seeds that are going to topple the Egyptian army. Yeah? They don't know it. All they know is this is terrifying. And this is a crying baby. And what do we do? And what's it going to cost us to tend to this little one? And what God knows is he is going to set my people free. What he knows is baked into the silent small things is the power and the beauty of his glory and his deliverance. And so (laughs) we value the day of small things. We cherish the day of small things. We lean in to the small things, the small moments of courageous compassion, not knowing what God will do with with these unlikely characters, these unlikely moments. And we of all people should be primed and ready to see it and to celebrate it, should we not? A little baby, (laughs) a little baby laid in a manger born to an unwed teenager crying in the night. There's this moment where we, I've been training this child to just show up right at the right moments. He's in my house church. We have a connection. He knows. Um, A child crying in the night. Claire, pinch him again. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, Here's Jesus in this manger. And he too had a death sentence pronounced over him over a tyrant. And through the courageous compassion of some wise men from Babylon who lied to Herod and generously gave to this baby, he was delivered, interestingly, not out of Egypt, but into it. And as he was delivered into Egypt, he began to grow and mature, and what he developed was a godly vision. As Jesus walked through the world, he saw people. He saw the blind man that was crying out as he was entering into Jericho, and they were going, shh, he doesn't care about you, hush. And the blind man calls out all the more and he says, bring him to me. And he looks at him. When he's in the crowd and the bleeding woman reaches out and touches him, he stops the whole crowd and he looks at her and he says, my daughter. He sees her. He brings dignity and value to the ones that everyone else is trying to silence and push aside. He doesn't do that. He sees you and your sin and your brokenness, the places where you're wallowing in your sin and death. He sees you, friend. And beautifully, his vision gives birth to godly compassion. He says, I can and I will do something about it. It's going to cost me. It's going to be very inefficient. It will not lead to me looking powerful. It will lead to my death, my destruction, my embarrassment, my vulnerability being stripped and laid bare. And in that moment, as he was bleeding and dying, the father was silent. 
And in his silence, Jesus stepped in and fulfilled the will of the Father in a way that secured your victory and mine. This is the story of how God delivers. And he has come for you. No matter where you've been, no matter how far you've gone, God is willing and able to deliver. Friend, come to him. And to those of you who know the great joys of being born again by the power of Jesus, would you continue to set your gaze on him? What the text tells us is that when we behold him, we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We start to look like him. And we, too, could become the sort of unlikely characters that see the world the way he sees the world and respond with the sort of courageous compassion that brings deliverance and life. Ah. Don't you want to worship Jesus like that? Let me pray for us. So our Father, I repent. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me for cherishing myself most. Give me your vision. Help us to have the warm compassion of Jesus erupting from our hearts. Equip this family to bring your deliverance in our city. Would you make it true, God? So I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would help them to respond wholeheartedly. If it's for the first time to Jesus, I pray that they would cross the line from death to life by placing their trust in Jesus. If that's you today, don't wait. Say yes to him. He's come for you. And for those that are in Christ, I pray that they would continue to to go with you on the journey wherever it is that you lead. Here we are, God. Send us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.